Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. I'm Doug McCullough of the Lone Star Policy Institute. And I'm Michael Hendricks from the Manhattan Institute. So if you're a Josiah Neely fan, don't worry, he will be back next week. He is continuing his paternity leave. Michael, you've been one of our repeat guests, and so uh, as Josiah was out, we wanted to uh, have you come in, since you sort of know uh, know what the program's about and have you sit in. And uh, I thought it would be a, a great topic for us to kind of go over together is uh, more on city and local uh, uh, politics, and we brought in a friend of mine, Charles Blaine, uh, from Urban Reform. And um, Charles, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me. I've been a listener for a while, so I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, um, <laughs> we're, we're recording on a day when uh, there's been a news out of Houston where Charles and I both live. Um, the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo has been canceled, and I just looked, and I believe it's, um, I believe there's just two million visitors to the Livestock Show uh, annually, if that's if that's correct. That's what I just saw on the interweb, um, which is hard to believe, but that just kind of gives people from outside an idea of just how massive this event really is, um, and it's, you know, annually this produces hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but we're going to come back to that and, and, and talk a little bit about the, the rodeo being canceled as part of this coronavirus uh, panic, this outbreak, this managing the outbreak. Uh, but I wanted to start by having you talk a little bit about your organization, Urban Reform. Tell us, tell, tell us a little bit about the work you do there. Yeah. So uh, Urban Reform is a nonprofit. We're a C4. And we focus really on the local level. I mean, we I, I have spent most of my political career focused on local government. Um, but what we were doing before, prior to, to launching Urban Reform, was focusing on local issues and how they related to state issues and what solutions could be found in our state legislature. And so um, I kind of grew frustrated with that because, you know, Houston City Council meets probably about 48 weeks out of the year. I mean, they're, they're an every week deal and they pass dozens and dozens of ordinances and resolutions and contracts on a weekly basis. And very few people pay attention to it, particularly, you know, anyone who's kind of limited government, free market minded. I sit in these city council meetings and you have a lot of uh, progressive activist groups who come and speak and testify. But anytime you want an alternative opinion, it's hard to find at city hall. So the goal was to really um, be that voice. But at the same time, Talk to folks here in Houston and in other cities who are in low-income communities, communities of color, who don't feel that they have an agency or the agency to speak up at City Hall or don't feel that they have the power to engage with their elected officials and show them that they do and that there's a lot of opportunity there if they just learn how to kind of organize, get together and start pushing for what they want. So that's really what we do. And we do that through you know editorial content, video content. We try to produce a lot of video content about what's happening in local government every single week just so that people can have a general idea, whether it's a one-minute clip or a five-minute clip, they can have an idea of what happened or what the big issue was that week. So just trying to inform and engage people and, and make a local change. Right. Well, uh, explain explain why it's necessary for urban reform to, to exist and do this work, because we're sitting here in one of the most conservative states, right? I mean, why is there a need at the local level for Houston? I mean, isn't Houston a, a, a pretty conservative state, city? 
You would think. I mean, interestingly, in our we just had a, a municipal election in November. Prior to that, Houston was the um, Houston City Council consisted of the most conservative council members um, out of any major city. I mean, we have 16 council members. Seven of them were Republicans. And so we were nearly going to get a majority. And then we had a really bad election. And now we're down to like four. So um, don't want to talk about that, though. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, yeah, we're in Texas. You would think that it would be naturally conservative. Our major cities aren't as as major cities across the country, um, you know, aren't. But what's frustrating is that in a lot of places you look, you do see Republicans attempting to engage. Um, you see conservatives pushing policy on the local level. Here in Texas, you don't find that as much. Um, the party does not do it as much. The candidates don't necessarily care about urban issues. Even when you hear some of the campaigning from the candidates, it's kind of just your cookie cutter uh, campaign out of a box. It's not so much engaging with various communities on the issues that are plaguing those communities. And it's, it's to simply put it, I mean, it's Republicans not knowing how to engage in cities. And that's incredibly frustrating for me. For me. Yeah. And so, um, you know, Michael, he's uh, he's off living in the big city now. But I, I think you've written a little bit about this. In fact, you I, one of the articles you wrote about this for National Review, I distinctly remember because the name of it is urban cowboys as opposed to urbane cowboys. <laughs> uh, so I guess you're familiar with this idea, too, about the, you know, the, the cities and the suburbs in Texas are not as maybe conservative as we like to sometimes think on sort of a statewide basis. Uh, give us your thoughts on this because you actually you actually grew up in the suburbs uh, outside of Dallas, right? That's right. I grew up in Flower Mound, Texas, which actually does have a mound in the <laughs> middle of town that sometimes has flowers on it. And from that the top was- of it, you can see all the way to downtown Dallas and all the way to downtown Fort Worth. And at the time when they were forming the town, which they which they insist is still a town, even though it's over 70,000 people. This is a town, will always remain a town. God forbid we're a city. You can see, basically, this was the most monumental fact of our town. And, you know, even as growth has continued in Texas, where I'm from, and, you know, as the town of Flower Mound became, in truth, a city, you know, we've really tried to stay tied to our roots as a, as a rural area. You know, and I think a lot of Republicans that I grew up with see themselves as being rooted more in that rural area and that soil. And, you know, even though I live here in New York City, I, I can't blame them for that. But, you know, when I was living in um, in Washington, D.C., before New York, it struck me that uh, so much of what we were dealing with in, in D.C. and, of course, now in New York, the, you know, the inability to build housing, the regulations that small businesses face that are trying to get off the ground. These are things that are crying out for conservative solutions, but conservatives don't seem to be voicing them or don't seem to be present in cities, uh, providing the kind of solutions that we need. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that really set me off back, back a handful of years ago is seeing this one stat from Pew that just 4% of people who call themselves quote, very conservative wanted anything to do with cities. I thought, well, that's an outrage. Certainly there is nothing inherent, I believe, in cities or rural areas that should make them, just by their nature, necessarily uh, as ideologically polarized as they are today. And they are. They are, they are strongly ideologically polarized. Uh, density is one of the greatest predictors of democratic vote share in American politics today. You know, uh, someone else has also pointed out how 
one of the great predictors of which way you're going to vote is your proximity to a Whole Foods or a Cracker Barrel. And I'll let you determine which one votes which way. But the truth is, we need conservatives speaking into cities. Uh, cities need conservatives, but also conservatives need cities. I think that's definitely true in Texas. But what does that look like? I, I mean, that's really a question for both of you. What does that even look like from a, uh, you know, there's there's one side that's sort of the electioneering side, right? That's like we've got to uh, we've got to have more conservatives that are focused on sending the, you know, telling the stories in, in cities. Right. That's one thing. But what is that story? What is the what is the conservative message? What is a free market message that would actually work in cities and suburbs? What what what? are we not doing right? What, what is there something new? Is there something that we're missing? Uh, you know, I'd sort of like both of you to answer that. Well, if I had to say one thing, I mean, and there are a number of things, but I think the, the biggest thing, at least I can speak to here in Texas that we have an issue with is with the way that conservatives in Texas speak about cities. So, I mean, you just look at our Lieutenant governor and he'll just say, you know, the most offensive things about cities as if he doesn't oversee or isn't the second um, highest elected official in the state with major metropolitan areas. And and so it is a lot of the rhetoric that's used to speak about cities and people who live in cities as if they are other. Um, and I think that is driven by from so prior to starting Urban Forum, I worked for a group called Empower Texans and it was, you know, a conservative group um, focused on state policy. And it took me a different route because I would, you know, speeches, I'd be giving speeches to Tea Party groups and Republican women's clubs, as opposed to now where most of my speeches are geared um, or requested by like rotary clubs and community groups and things like that. And I would go and give these speeches and, and try to talk a bit about cities and it just wouldn't catch. They just were uninterested in hearing what I had to say. And so when I made that transition, I made sure to start engaging with these other groups because I wanted to talk about these issues from our perspective. And whether or not they they listened to me or were supportive of the message, at least someone was there attempting to engage with them. And one of the things that I often took away from um, the the opposition to cities when I would speak at, at these really conservative groups was that they would have this idea that, you know, in their communities, they had a sense of community and you don't have that in cities. And that's why you have this social degradation of cities. But I think that what needs to be realized is that there is still a very strong sense of community in cities. In many parts of cities, you know, churches are still kind of the core of that local community, um, whether it, it could be a church, it could be a park, it could be a school, whatever the case is, you still have that sense of community that you can find in other places. But for some reason, a lot of conservatives don't seem to believe that or, or haven't seemed to realize that. And so I think it's a twofold process. I think it's getting conservatives a little more comfortable and uh, advancing their rhetoric or, or enhancing their rhetoric when it comes to cities, but also actually speaking to people in cities and seeing the issues that are plaguing them and what the solutions are. So a lot of groups that I speak to now are on kind of the the east side of, of Houston or or um, third ward area. And some of the issues they talk about, they're actually their number one issue really is illegal dumping. And we I remember I went and spoke to a group and they were talking about illegal dumping and they were talking about their city council member and the mayor and how they were trying to help and all this stuff. And so we kind of broke it down and I'm like, all right, so illegal dumping is the issue. I gave you my conservative spiel speech already and you didn't like it. So let's talk about this very specific issue. Illegal dumping. So what's the problem? You have um, 200 vacant lots in this part of town that aren't developing. There's nothing happening on it because they're owned by 
a local government entity, a local government entity who's headed up by a, you know, confidant of one of our elected officials. And so you start to see all these tie-ins. And when you acknowledge those things and talk to people about them, it's like, all right, you're very, your issue that you're focused on is illegal dumping. But the reason that it persists is because ultimately you keep electing the same people who are saying that they're solving the problem. But when you look deeper, they're not. And so I think it comes down to really looking at issues that are actually impacting communities and talking to them about the solutions. Because, you know, conservatives do have solutions for a lot of these issues, whether it's illegal dumping, poverty. Um, we have an $8 billion budget deficit here in the city, um, you know, a, a massive pension, um, uh, healthcare liability deficit. All these issues conservatives have solid solutions to, but we're just not in the the realm, we're not in the competition for policy. We don't engage in that level, at least here. And we should, because it does a disservice for all the folks who live here who don't really have any choices because we choose to sit on the sidelines. Yeah. And I think it would surprise many conservatives, how many of them actually live in cities and don't even know it. It would surprise many progressives, how they would believe in or voice conservative issues and have conservative stances and they don't even know it. And if we can get more of them to see that both where they live matters and the issues matter, I think we'll be able to make a lot of progress. You know, I, it, it, it's still incredible to me that you can have people on all sides of the aisle say that we need to build more housing in America. You have progressives, Bernie bro socialists standing side by side with libertarians and conservatives and moderates, you name it, saying, look, we have a, 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 among many things, we have a regulatory problem that is acting as a barrier to not only prosperity, but justice, social justice. And there is some degree of agreement here that at the local level, forget what's happening at the national level and partisanship there, at the local level, we could actually have some agreement here. And housing is also where you see the potential, I think, for the greatest impact in reform, the greatest example of where, you know, we can show how conservative ideas work, how market oriented ideas work and how, mm -hmm. you know, political coalitions can actually reform and how, you know, conservatives, whether they know it or not, are actually engaging in their cities, even if they don't know it, even if they don't know that they live you know, in a dense, in a relatively dense urban area, certainly if you were to ask someone who lives in some of the mixed-use developments that are now going up in Frisco, Texas, whether they live in a city, they may not, they may not think so. They may still think, well, cities are downtown Dallas, they're, they're, you know, Manhattan, but, you know, I, I live, I live somewhere else. And the truth is, no, the same problems and the same opportunities that exist in cities on the coast are now where you are in Frisco, and certainly in Flower Mound too. Many parts of Houston, that Charles certainly knows well, and you know well, Doug. You know these are places that we we actually should be engaging because you know this is where this is where many of us do live, and if we're not careful, you know, the problems that we see in the coast are going to come right to us, and. You know, this is this is something where you certainly saw that not just on the issues as we've been talking about, but also politically. We in the last election, you had Ted Cruz standing in Tarrant County, the home of Fort Worth, 
and declaring it the reddest county and the reddest state in the nation. Four days later, Tarrant County went for his opponent, Beto O'Rourke. What we're, what we're seeing is Democratic support going up, not just in downtown Fort Worth, but all across the densifying north and northeast and western suburbs, or in the north and northeast of Fort Worth and the western suburbs of, of, of Arlington, which again, when I, I spent some time growing up in Arlington, Texas as well, and we never thought of it as a city, but, but guess what? It's 400,000 people. It's huge. And these are places now that are changing. And it's often, it's not just, uh, you know, people fleeing blue uh, states that are turning Texas blue and Texas City's blue. But it's often two groups of people um, that, that conservatives should actually be able to make terrific inroads with. It, number one, it is native Texans. Maybe even people who've forgotten what it was like under democratic uh, rule in Texas for years. Uh, certainly, I remember Governor Ann Richards quite well. Um, and it's also recent immigrants. Um, it's not just Hispanic immigrants, but it's also, for instance, the uh, Arab immigrants that uh, that flock to Houston suburbs. These are, these are constituencies that, that, that conservatives can actually reach out to uh, because they're often, for instance, the ones that are first hurt by new housing prices, um, but the housing prices that are often inaccessible to newcomers. Um, and it's in, in many ways the people who are coming in from blue states that are helping keep some of the cities red. There, there are folks that are fleeing San Francisco and L.A. and New York saying, we're done with that. We see what happens when you have no competition of ideas and no competition for the, the real kind of prosperity that we, be, that we need in these cities. Um, that is, I think, both the, the issue case and the political case that conservatives can and, and are making, whether they know it or not. Well, someone who fled right. New Jersey for Texas, I definitely agree with you there. Um, you know, I, I came here and, and it I, and I think from a lot of the, the folks who I speak to who do come from, you know, other places, whether it's New York, New Jersey or elsewhere, it's the same thing. I mean, they're fleeing the burdensome property taxes, the increasing housing costs or the regulations for any sort of, you know, job or starting a business, whatever the case is. And they're coming here and Luckily, I think most of them are recognizing that the reason that they had to flee to begin with was because of the political kind of infrastructure they had in their original state and aren't bringing that here. Um, but you made a great point about coalition building for housing. I think that's so important. Um, and we had this kind of interesting fight a couple of months, well, actually a year ago now, during the last legislative session where they were trying to push through property tax for reform and wanted to cap, um, I think the original proposal was like a 3.5% cap year-over-year growth on property tax revenue for all local governments. Um, and for whatever reason, I, well, I know what the reason is because homeowners vote and, and here they typically vote Republican, that Republicans in the Texas legislature would only, you know, market and message to homeowners. And it was killing me that no one wanted to include renters in that equation as if they don't have a stake in the game and as if they are just kind of, you know, as if these building owners aren't passing on property tax increases to them and their rental rates. And so we started talking about that and I got with one of the state senator, senators um, and we got with the appraisal district to come up with some graphics that showed that in 
Harris County at least, um, rental rates on multifamily units were increasing, I mean, not rental rates, property taxes, um, property tax appraisals were increasing at a faster clip than on single family homeowners. And so we kind of put that information out there and try to gin up support from renters because they're often forgotten in this conversation as if they're not part of the process. And so it would be a great opportunity to, to build coalitions with folks like that if we could just get more conservatives to, to expand the base when they're talking about those kind of issues. Yeah, and I think from my perspective, I think that, uh, you know, Charles, you mentioned things like budgets and pensions and all that. And, you know, none of that's all that sexy. And I think that when conservatives, even though we may have very good ideas on those things, I don't think that people and I think this is true even at the, you know, at the national level, the, the issues like that that don't feel quite as direct, it just don't really resonate. But when it's something um, something as tangible as housing is something that I think can really move the needle with people and they really will become more open to ideas. And I think that housing, affordable housing, is something that conservatives definitely have a, uh, a, a very different type of story to, to tell. And actually, I think it's, uh, and I know there's some other things we want to get into, but I think it's worth um, uh, mentioning that Houston in particular has a, uh, a, a, a very different approach to uh, construction and housing in the sense that uh, we don't have zoning the way other, other major cities do. Uh, Charles, talk a little bit about that and, and what difference that might make compared to, say, the way uh, other cities are developed and how they grow. Yeah, no, you make a great point. Right. So we don't have a formal zoning code. Unfortunately, we still do have a lot of things built into the city charter and the muni code, like minimum lot size requirements and deed restrictions, which are really interesting because we're the only city in Texas where deed restrictions are enforced, um, well, are, are carried through with and then enforced by our city legal department. Typically in other cities in Texas, they have to go through kind of a civil court process. And if you're alleging that someone is violating the deed of your community, you have to follow through with that process. Here, you just make a complaint to the legal department and they handle that. And they argue that that's because we don't have a formal zoning code. Um, but so you see things like that in minimum parks, minimum um, parking requirements and things like that. So we do still have some stuff, but by and large, it is a pretty um, kind of free and open area to develop. And I think we see that whether you're looking on the periphery and the Fort Bend counties, like the Sugarlands of the world, and you're seeing a lot of the, just the, the growth of these subdivisions and young families just bustling to move to them, or even in the city where you're seeing just developments pop up left and right. And I think it's because we have created that climate that allows that. I mean, largely we have a pretty reasonable, um, uh, building infrastructure, if you will, our permitting process is a little chopped up where um, we're dealing with issues there to try to fix that. But by and large, we've created a climate here where it just makes it easier to develop and makes it more affordable to develop and passes that those cost savings on to the people who are moving in. Um, and that's what we've been trying to maintain more recently, where we're seeing different attacks on that um, on that climate, as you know, as recently as a year and a half ago, the city council pushed um, a change to the floodplain ordinance, which was in response to Hurricane Harvey, and it was done with good intent. Um, but the problem is, is that what they did was they ordered all homes um, within the 500-year floodplain to be elevated 
to the 500-year-plus plane level plus two feet. And so what that has done in a lot of parts of town, particularly Meyerland, which is along Braze Bayou um, down here, and it flooded really badly, is that you go and you see these houses, and some of them are like 15 feet in the air with these massive staircases going up because when they had to rebuild, they had to adhere to these new guidelines. And then you have houses that didn't rebuild because either they left or they just chose not to do a rebuild. And next to it, it's, I mean, it's on the ground. It's a stark difference. And so you're, we're trying to stop things like that that are coming down the pipeline. It's weird because they'll push really bad things. And then the next week they'll do something great. Like a couple of months ago, they um, expanded the minimum parking requirement uh, or the area that is eligible to um, to get around our minimum parking requirement ordinance. And it was originally kind of the central business district. And then they did a little bit of the east side. And then they moved into kind of midtown now, which is really great. You have people pushing back against it, but they're pushing forward with it. And so it's interesting. They do some bad stuff and then they do some good stuff. But by and large, we've had a climate that has really um, allowed affordability to thrive. And I think for folks like me, who I moved here when I was 25 years old, um, had I wanted to kind of move, I was you know, living in New Jersey, North New Jersey, lived in Brooklyn for a little bit, but had I wanted to kind of get out on my own, get an apartment and start, you know, my life, I think it would have been significantly harder there than it was here. It was like a fresh opportunity an affordable opportunity. And I think that, you know, Texas in particular, but Houston specifically provides that for a lot of people. And look, Houston is a word for zoning reform, just as... Manhattan is a scare word for zoning reform, for densification. And it shouldn't be. Look, New York rightly gets a lot of criticism for being practically unlivable for anybody on a decent income. And you know what? The critics are right. But New York is also a lovely place and a fantastic place to grow yourself, to grow your career. Wonderful. Houston, by the way, also gets a lot of unfair criticism. There's a lot of scare words around, you know, or a lot of scary images around, you know, uh, who, who knows what sort of toxic dump could go next to your house. Obviously, everybody has that problem in Houston. Can't possibly fathom why, you know, millions are moving into Houston, why Houston happens to be the most diversity in America. Can't possibly imagine why it remains incredibly affordable and creating a lot of jobs. Who knows why? But... The truth is, is like, if we are strategic and we say, look, if you're going to have housing reform, we're not trying to turn your community into Manhattan. And look, we're trying to do zoning reform, but we're not saying that we're trying to make you into Houston, although we can say Houston's actually not that bad. And in fact, we should learn a lot from their example. But instead, if we say, look, we're, we're, we're pushing for incremental reform. We understand that your house matters a lot to your wealth. It matters. Your neighborhood matters a lot to where your children go to school. And your neighborhood matters a lot to the vision of the sort of, I don't know, culture and community you're trying to live in and grow up in. People want to defend that. They say, look, incremental change is what we're going for. And by the way, we're not trying to cram anything down your throats. We're saying that if you yourself want to see change, you have the freedom to do that. If your neighbors who you know want to be able to change something about their house, if they want to be able to take that, you know, backyard garage and, and add a little story on top of it and rent it out to their to their son who, who's coming back from college, like, you should have the freedom to do that. 
And that's not going to change the inherent shape of your neighborhood. And by the way, if the, if the entire neighborhood over the next generation wants to be able to change into something with a little bit more density and add a few more apartments in there, you have the freedom to do that. I think that we can say that none of that is radical. None of that should be scary. What we can actually say is that when we do allow things like accessory dwelling units, duplexes, triplexes, and we just say, at least give us that, at least give us this incremental reform, the people see it's actually not that bad. It's not that scary. And we can begin to push more communities into loosening up their permitting, into allowing more mixed-use developments, into changing some of the parking requirements. Because you begin to see as more and more of these changes come, things aren't bad. Houston's not bad. New York's not bad. And upzoning and reforming housing in your neighborhood is not going to be bad. In fact, it's the reason why you live there. What shocks me to some extent is that, you know, Texans pride themselves on private property rights. And they love to scream that from the high heavens. And to a lot of, to, to, for the most part, it's true until you want to build something next door. Then other people get crazy. Um, it's so interesting just to see that. And, and, you know, I get it to some extent. I really do. You know, you live somewhere and, and you got a great view or it's quiet and you don't want a building next to you. But ultimately, if you're going to pride yourself on private property rights, you should extend that to everyone. Um, an interesting, really quick story. We had this fight uh, maybe two years ago now in the um, historical commission. We have a, a pretty broad ranging um, historical ordinance. Um, and historical and architectural ordinance and they some guy bought a building in one of the historical districts and it had graffiti on three sides of it so he painted over the graffiti and since he painted in a different color he wanted to paint the front facade as well so when he started that he got a building a tag from the permanent department saying he needed to go and get a certificate of appropriation or something like that from the from the um historical commission and, and permitting commission and so he goes to do that, and what happens is, come to find out, one of the HOA presidents is the one who called the permitting department on him and shows up to the hearing, and when the commission is discussing the guy's interest in painting his building, they call the HOA president up there to ask his input. And they're like, well, you know, we built, we created this historical ordinance, and it gives us authority to tell him what color to paint the building. And one of the, the commissioners who's on this, this board is like, no, it does not, that we really, that we don't have that authority. And they were like, well, what if we just gently suggest that if he painted this color, we'll approve the permit? And then when they called the guy up, they asked him, the HOA president, who has no involvement with this building, what color do you think he should paint his building? And the guy's like, oh, well, he maybe he should paint it. I don't know. He might have said white or something. He's like, and he should probably paint the grout too because you guys can make him do that. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is what we're dealing with. And, and so, you know, these local things, they, they just, they drive me crazy to some extent. But yeah, it's an interesting story. that we had. Conservatives nationally have a tendency to right. be communists <laughs> locally. <laughs> So, so we've been talking about Houston, and uh, so, someone uh, a few minutes ago referred to some scary things happening. I think that was in the context of uh, of illegal dumping, but something happened today that might be a little scary. Uh, the day that we're recording this, we just had um, an announcement that the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo 
has been canceled. And it wasn't a decision of the Livestock Show. I believe it was actually a decision of uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner. Um, Charles, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? What do you know about it? Um, Why was the decision made? And was this a do you think this was a, a case of statesmanship or do you think this was sort of bowing to political pressure that there's this drumbeat that all these major events need to be canceled everywhere? Uh, kind of give us your thoughts on this. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So they cancel it as of it, in 40 minutes. It will be over, which and it should it was supposed to run until I think about the 30th of the month, the end of the month. Um, and the, so today at 4 p.m. it will be closed. And they said that. It is because of a coronavirus, obviously the outbreak, but on the 28th, there was someone who allegedly had attended the barbecue cook-off, which for those who don't know, it's kind of the the pre-party to the rodeo, if you will, Um, attended the barbecue cook-off, and they don't know if they were showing signs or symptoms of coronavirus, but they were then later, uh, they, they then later tested positive for coronavirus. And so this was relayed through one of the news anchors. She had a source who told her this. He relayed it to kind of the broader public. Um, today, the health department and the mayor, city of Houston, um, decided that they would be doing two things. One, calling an end to the rodeo for the first time in 40 years. And two, issuing a seven-day kind of emergency declaration, if you will. And both the county and the city will be issuing an emergency declaration. And here in Texas, when that happens, the county um, judge is essentially your emergency coordinator. And so Judge Lena Hidalgo will now be taking over and, and leading the emergency response for the next uh, seven days. And then if they'll see if they want to extend that or not. Um, but it, I mean, it's really interesting. I do think that this is just them buckling to the fear. And, and you know, is it warranted? Is it justified? I'm not sure. We haven't had many cases here in Houston, Harris County. We've had some cause for concern, of course, but we haven't had that many. And to see some of the, the extremes that we're going to to prevent it, like, for instance, Austin Council South by Southwest, which, okay, kind of similar to the rodeo. You can justify it, whatever. But then they went and said that they're also banning any event with that is going to have over 2,500 people unless you were explicitly approved by the city to host this event and you have to get kind of like some public health permit and go through this entire process for, I think it's the next 30 days. So you're seeing things like this where it's like, okay, you know, you're really extending the hand of government into things. I mean, an event for 2,500 people isn't, it's nowhere near the rodeo. It's nowhere near South by Southwest. I mean, these, those were massive events. We're now talking about minor events that it's extending to. Um, and so it, it's concerning, especially for the local business. Yeah, and, and just for perspective, um, the, uh, the, the person that was supposed to have attended uh, some of the activities before the rodeo, This we have our big annual uh, rodeo cook-off, that was 13 days ago. And so most of the time when I'm hearing about people doing the quarantining, it's like 14 days. So it seems a little odd to me that they're shutting down the entire rodeo when this person apparently was there 13 days ago. Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it may, it's, it's really kind of, I, I, I think it's just... I don't want to call them alarmists, but it does seem as though it's just a, a, out of fear that they're doing this. Um, you know, they identified the person, they retraced the person's steps, they did all of the proper precautions for that one case. And since the launch of the rodeo and or the, since the barbecue cookoff, we haven't heard of any other cases, and so there we haven't heard of any community. Um, uh, I forgot what they're called, community contact cases or anything like that. So it seems like it's just an abundance of precaution, but it, it does it does 
make me a little fearful about where it extends, you know, if, if we start moving into other areas and what else they try to um, limit or cap or, or influence. Right, right. Um, Michael, what are you seeing in New York? I'm sure that whatever concerns we're seeing here, uh, there, there's got to be uh, that much, you know, larger scale in New York. What are you seeing? Look, I mean, folks here in New York are concerned. I'm, I'm concerned that Josiah Neely is now not hosting this podcast. I mean, everything, everything's <laughs> falling apart now. And look, you know, everybody is becoming overnight a public health expert. And everybody has opinions similar to how we have opinions about the weather. Much of the reaction that we're seeing separate from the officials, just on the street, our neighbors, are much similar to whatever their local crisis is. In our case, it's snowstorms. You have one group, it's the snowstorm cons, saying that they remember at a time when forecasters got it wrong and, and their base assumption is they see no snow, there is no snow, it's going to be okay. And then you have another group that looks at the numbers and they say, yes, but look at the probability of the storm coming, look at... Look at how much better off we would be if we prepare properly for it, if we have, you know, stocks of salt and, you know, and, and of course that we have sufficiently prepped for everything that you prep for. In Westchester, it's eggs, white bread and milk for the French toast set up there. It's, you know, apparently in Brooklyn, in our local Whole Foods, it's, you know, stocking up on hand wash and gluten-free crackers. They're completely wiped out in the Whole Foods gluten-free cracker aisle. But, you know, what we're seeing is that abundance of caution in other cities around the world, like Hong Kong, that have engaged in active social distancing, something that they learned from prior outbreaks of bird flu, have worked. Uh, China basically shutting down parts of their country seems to have worked if we're to rely on their numbers at all, which I would strongly caution against. We're only getting, what, something like 10 new cases. Extreme measures work. What we know for sure, we don't know what that will look like here in America, and we certainly don't have the kind of overweening governments that those in other countries have. What we do know for sure is that some of the greatest impacts will be felt, not just in individual cases, severe or not severe as they may be, of coronavirus, but in the other disruptions that come, the disruptions to just basic medical care for everyone else who's suffering from everything else but coronavirus, disruptions too in our economies. So in New York, there's a $6 billion budget gap at the state level that Andrew Cuomo, our governor, was asking the city to help pay for $2 billion of that by cutting back, of all things, on health care, especially for seniors. Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York is facing a $6 billion budget deficit that he's asking the city of New York to help pay for to the tune of $2 billion from, of all places, our health care. Uh, particularly for seniors, the group most likely to be affected by coronavirus. These other kind of disruptions we're going to see are going to be facing not just our state and local budgets, which um, if the empty restaurants here in New York are any indication are going to be suffering considerably, um, 
but we're going to see it in just our social patterns. Um, and we don't know how long this is going to last. Um, I don't think that we can say that the greatest, you know, fear is fear itself, but certainly fear is taking hold in New York. And where that fear leads and what impact it has on us will, in some respects, be as uh, interesting and profoundly impactful as the coronavirus itself. You know, on that point, it's interesting because uh, I've started to uh, listen to Yuval Levin's new book um, on a time to rebuild. And he's talking about a time to rebuild institutions and uh, it, everything institutions would be everything from the family to churches and synagogues and private institutions and all this really trying to bolster private society as opposed to the the public sector and all that. And, and I'm a very much a firm believer in that type of approach, but this is in some sense, this is a really interesting time because this is, this is the most challenging for that mindset, right? Of, you know, we need to, we need to build strong communities by bringing more people together. Well, it's hard to bring people together but when please you, don't touch me. And did you, please don't touch me. Yeah. Don't shake hands. All right. And so, you know, people are, people are uh, not only canceling these major events, they're canceling small meetups. Um, and, but it's, it's, what's interesting to me is this is on one hand, it's the hardest time to follow this approach. It is also probably the time of greatest need for this approach of we actually need to be, uh, for lack of a better word, we need to be ministering to more people, right? We need to have more personal care because, how many people are going to essentially be quarantined or self sequestered and dealing with loneliness and dealing with depression? And frankly, you know, all of these, uh, all these effects of the outbreak, whether they're infected or not, this is the type of thing that private institutions can do well. Individuals can do well, but in the words of, uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg, he likes to say, the government can't love you. So this is a this is an interesting time that it's I think there's a lot of repercussions. And I think sort of this uh, private institutions, charitable, charitable approach, it's going to be more challenging. But there's also a greater opportunity. If you want to look at it that way, there's really an opportunity to, to really make an impact with people. I think that's absolutely right. It will also be what social trends the virus reinforces or undercuts you know there's who knows what the future is going to look like uh, over the near term or long term but you can see uh, divergence in uh, universities and workforces that um, have the freedom and ability to send their workers home uh, to work remotely uh, and those that don't feel like they have the freedom and flexibility to work remotely um, there's already divide there. We're also seeing, you know, a trend where non-essential workers in in companies and sectors where remote working is possible are the first to be sent home, which which we do know reinforces a trend that's existing in our cities where, you know, a place like San Francisco can still be very much in demand for the top tier of workers. But for those who are in any level below that top tier, they may find themselves uh, more likely to get a job in Salt Lake City or Boise than they do in San Francisco. 
your job prospects are better there. Goldman Sachs is still hiring in New York City, but they're also hiring up a storm for some some other positions that are not their you know top tier investment bankers in Salt Lake City. Uh, that's not a knock in Salt Lake City. It's just saying that we're seeing this divergence, and something like the coronavirus seems to lean into that. Um, but for those without a choice, uh, they're going to find themselves uh, facing some really tough choices. Either, you know, continue to uh, work in the face of a, for some, what is a deadly virus, or find themselves out of job opportunities. Um, that's that's very very difficult. Um, and it is reinforcing what we're already seeing across this country. One of the things I'm really interested in looking at and, and seeing what happens short-term and long-term is the effects that this has on certain communities. So I don't know about in, in New York, Michael, but here, when it first started, there was a rumor that came out, it was like on Twitter, that there were numerous cases of coronavirus found in Houston's um, kind of like Chinatown neighborhood. And immediately after that, they said that the business at these, you know, small mom and pop restaurants and um, ethnic stores just took a dramatic decline. And since then, there have been attempts by local officials to go and eat lunch there to show it's safe and tell people to come back. The news um, outlets have done numerous stories encouraging people to come to Chinatown because of the just dramatic decline in business. And so really interested to see how, you know, if that continues and, and what the long-term effects are of that. Because, I mean, as you mentioned before, Houston's a very diverse city and, and you know, a lot of that diversity and folks seeking out those, you know, different ethnic choices is what has been driving things. And so to see it change just on a whim, it's going to be going to be interesting to see what, what turns out. Well, on that note, uh, I want to thank you both for joining us. And next week, we will have uh, Josiah Neely back with us. Uh, And Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Irving Cowboys.